I got in an altercation with a jester. <laughs> uh, huh? Wow. What did he say about wrestling? Hello, and welcome to the Cut the Cord podcast, episode 28. I'm Hannah, and I'm joined by some other streaming media nerds. Amanda. Hi. Ryan. Hello. And Chris. Hey. Together, we take on television for those who have cast off the tyranny of their local cable provider. Each week, we gather here to find a great show to watch from the often overwhelming variety of shows to choose from. We review the prior week's selection, then we pick a new show and do it all over again. This is a reviews show, so there will be spoilers. This week's show is a Netflix original, The Confession Tapes. Our companion song for this episode is Hard Time Killin' Floor Blues by Skip James. Let's take a listen. The Confession Tapes was created, directed, and written by Kelly Laudenberg. The cinematography was by Mina Singh, and the film editing was by Omri Maos. I butchered that. <laughs> it's kind of a tradition. <laughs> yeah. They've done a lot of documentary work and things, lots of PBS and such, so good for them. I just really felt like the film editing deserved a shout out here. <laughs> mm-hmm. Too often, film editors don't get shout outs. Well, yeah. And these cases cover, I mean, literally decades of time. And yeah. to take all that footage and edit it down to a coherent story in yeah. 40, 45 minutes. And a lot of audio and in a compelling visual manner that keeps the flow of the story going and isn't too distracting. Yeah, and this is def- a subject that's difficult to make interesting at times. It can definitely be a little dull. It was also created, directed, and written by the same person, so it sounds mm-hmm. like it's sort of a passion project for her. Yeah, definitely. It's clearly something that she's very passionate about and has a definite perspective on. And did a ton of research. Oh, yeah. Plot summary. Following up on the success of Making a Murderer and The Keepers, Netflix is presenting us The Confession Tapes, which is a series of documentaries reviewing six cases of purported false confessions, the facts surrounding the case, interviews with family and friends of the convicted and the victims, experts, prosecutors, detectives, and journalists. I thought it was interesting that they interviewed both the prosecutor and the defense, who really did get both sides. Yeah, I'm surprised that they got that many prosecutors and judges to agree to appear in something that was clearly about false confessions. Mm-hmm. Right, but they almost all universally believe that that person is guilty. There's only, I think, one case where the prosecution refuses to participate. Right. Yeah. So they went into this. Hopefully they were told what this was going to be. Mm-hmm. And yet they still voluntarily went in, knowing that they were going to sort of be the villains of the piece. And they yeah. went into it anyway. Right. Well, I mean, yeah. if they're going to make something bad-mouthing your life's work anyway, you probably should be there to defend it. You might as well defend it. Yeah, you may as well step up and be like, nope, I am pure in my conviction and I think I did the right thing. Mm -hmm. There's sort of two schools of thought about that. One of the risks you run is if you do show your face on camera, you know that you're not going to get a sympathetic treatment and you know that any little slip up, like at the beginning, I think in the first episode, there was one of the, maybe it was a prosecutor, I don't remember, who said, we put in the media or we said in the media and then corrected Mm -hmm. himself and said, "Uh, well, we didn't put in the media. The media reported that. Yes. Mm -hmm. And they left that in. They didn't edit out his flow. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that points out one theme that kind of runs through all these cases yeah. is the media will take the meat that's offered to them from the prosecution. If it bleeds, it leads. So Absolutely. As a journalism major and someone who holds a degree in journalism but does not actively practice it, I know all about the biases that the media has towards mostly sensationalism. A lot of people complain about the media having a leftward uh, bias or a rightward bias when really it just has a what's newsworthy and what will get the most eyeballs bias. And these murder trials absolutely qualify. They're all lurid. They're bloody. They're sensational. They, you know, have tragic, for the most part, very sympathetic Mm -hmm. victims. 
fratricide, matricide, sororicide, homicide. Oh, right. We figured out what all those words were last time. (laughs) In a lot of cases, the most compelling thing you can do is to build a narrative around what the prosecution thinks happened. And when the defense doesn't have as compelling of a narrative to strike back with, mostly the defense is just saying, well, we don't know what happened. We just do know that it wasn't the defendant. Mm -hmm. A persuasive and coherent narrative, it affects the jury more than just saying, Mm -hmm. well, we don't know. It just wasn't our guy. It's something that the media can latch onto as well. And a taped confession. Mm-hmm. Right. That's extremely powerful. Even after watching all of this and hearing all the explanations of how and why people can be forced to make confessions, my mind can understand that, but my gut says you would never, ever why confess to something that you did not do. Yeah. Right. And I think they mentioned that in most of the episodes that in the juries, most people can't even imagine confessing to a crime that they didn't commit. So mm-hmm. how could he possibly confess and not be guilty? Right. Especially right. when you can see the videotape and see that they're not being tortured, that they, in general, the people who are confessing do not have mental issues or developmental problems. Some of them do, but overall, this spans yeah. all socioeconomic and education levels of people who confess. This documentary definitely focuses on people who probably don't have any cognitive or intellectual problems, Mm -hmm. but a lot of the false confessions are elicited from children and people with lower IQ. Other than the the one guy in the 8th and H case that they said had a a low IQ. Okay, so let's focus on some of the episodes. Episode 1 and 2 covered the case of Sebastian Burns and Ahmed Rafay, who were convicted of the murders of Tariq Rafay, Sultana Rafay, and Basma Rafay, who were the nuclear family of uh, Ahmed. It's True East, right, is the name of that episode. Episode 3 focused on Wesley Myers, who was convicted of the murder of his partner Teresa. Is that the trial by fire one or is that? No, that's that's the next one. This one was also a fire. It was the one that they told him that he was drunk. He must have been drunk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were drunk and you blacked out. The murder at the bar. Right. She was murdered before. There were just two fire ones in a row. Episode four covered Karen Bose convicted of the murder of her daughter, Robin Bose. Episode five covered Woody Woodall, who was convicted of the murders of John Lavelle Lynn and Robert Arthur Van Allen. John Lavelle Lynn was his uncle. Was his uncle and Robert was a friend of the family. This was the a tow truck driver who was ambushed and killed. Mm -hmm. And then uh, number six covered the 8th and H crew. So it was the conviction of Calvin Alston, Christopher Turner, Kelvin Smith, Alfonso Lamar Harris, Russell Overton, Levy Roos, Timothy Catlett, Clifton Yarborough, and several unnamed minors who either pled guilty or were convicted of the murder of Catherine Fuller. Christopher Turner was eventually paroled and think there is a pending appeals case as of the publication of this podcast. This is the uh, mugging mm-hmm. in the alleyway and sexual assault and murder of this woman. Really horrific. Oh, yeah. Like, they didn't really go into the t- details because I think the details were simply horrific. They kind of speak for themselves. The way they described that was just horrific. Yeah. I mean, you had a police officer there who said they've investigated, you know, hundreds of murders, and this is the one mm-hmm. that still, the brutality of it sticks out to them. You guys, can we have a week without body horror? And then the last episode was Lawrence Delisle convicted of the attempted murder of his wife, Suzanne Delisle, and the murder of their four children, Brian Delisle, Melissa Delisle, Catherine Delisle, and Emily Delisle. Car driven into the river. And I chose to write out all of, not just the convicted, but also the victims of these deaths. Because I think that the victims' names get lost in a lot of these conversations. And I think it's worthwhile to put out there that these are people who died, actual real people. And um, they're also connected to their convicted killers. So there's a lot of really complex mourning and extra sadness involved for the families of everyone involved in this in all of these cases whether you believe these people are the convicted murderers are innocent or guilty these are all horrific crimes that echo throughout that community and you know are still talked about in those areas 
you know, to this day. These are the worst days of people's lives played out for everyone to see. Yeah, and the show does a good job of reminding you that all those people who are convicted are people as well. And so I appreciate you not using their street names on right. the 8th and H crew, because I'm sure that that guy's tired of being known as Booger by now. It's not right. Those probably did not help in their trial. Probably didn't, yeah. That's like being known as your, like, AIM messenger handle from, like, <laughs> when you were 10 for the rest of your life. That's true. To have it voiced by a bunch of sneering news reporters is probably an extra slap in the face. Mm-hmm. That was one thing yeah. that I did find interesting, though, is some of the reporters seemed like they were still kind of haunted by sort of the behavior of the media in these cases. Some of them, I think, had deep regrets about the way that they covered those. I think particularly the journalist who interviewed Wesley Myers right after his confession, I think. She talked about how she went over and over. A couple of the other journalists seemed to be people who kind of had been aware of the case and then looked it over from the perspective of a journalist and went, wait, this is, you know, later on down the line. You had mentioned the idea of a coherent narrative, that when horror happens like this, people want it wrapped up in an answer that they can understand right they don't want doubt or any of that i mean that horror needs to be contained yep i think that's a natural impulse to make order out of chaos ambiguity is deeply uncomfortable and to sit with that it takes a lot of like actual training and hard work to deal with it so also human beings are just we're storytellers we pass down our history through stories we love a narrative that like has a beginning middle and an end and characters and a motive and like that's the kind of thing that people eat up in the news media yeah and i think it was episode four with karen bose and her daughter who died in the fire they mentioned that heavily in there that the prosecution had a story and they had reasonable doubt but they couldn't really like prove the reasonable doubt because it was like well something else happened but it's just like we don't know who or what it's like all the people involved are dead just completely bass backwards the onus should be on the prosecution to prove that there is no reasonable doubt and in these right. instances the defense was having to prove i think that's a lofty idea but that's not how the human mind works yep sadly no and it's not surprisingly how police investigators and detectives minds work which you would think they would do better and know better but they really don't they in a lot of cases treat these people like they're cartoon villains or like they're on some bad lifetime movie i think the bigger error here on the police part is not necessarily in obtaining these convictions but settling in on who the guilty party is and then ignoring all evidence that does not support that. They make their decision and then they collect the facts that they need to back up that decision. Yeah. Not in all cases, I'm sure, but in these cases, it seems like that is what happened. Yeah, in the DC case, I mean, there was a witness who was then later killed by the person that she had accused. There was another sexual predator who was also in the area and committed similar crimes. So there were several people who could have done this. So much reasonable doubt. That reasonable doubt. And I think the police officers aren't necessarily out to frame someone. I think their mindset is probably, we know who did this. There's evidence out there that we just can't find, but we know they're guilty, so... They want the win. They want that check mark yeah. in the W column and move on. Yeah, they want to be able to close the case and say that it's solved. And let's not forget, there's a scene in the very last episode where they're talking about those kids who got driven into the river, and the police officer who still to this day thinks he did it correctly talks about them handing him the bodies of those yeah. children over and over again. Mm-hmm. When you are literally holding the bodies of dead children, it's really hard not to want to find the person who did that and be willing to do whatever it takes to put that murderer in your mind, whether it's true or not, I can't say, but right. to want them to be to yeah. be convicted and to believe you're right to do it. That's kind of the best case, most charitable interpretation of their actions is you just have someone who's so after justice and so desperate to find out the truth that they run roughshod over and innocent person or potentially innocent person law enforcement deals with by and large guilty people who say they are not guilty all the time so i think you come to the conclusion that everyone is lying to you and everyone is guilty definitely they're very cynical they attend to the worst moments in people's lives 
just constantly. I'm sure that's stressful. Just being around a police officer in a lot of scenarios makes people tense up and stress out and change the way that they act. And a lot of communities, uh, if they have a good forward-thinking police department, they do stuff like active community outreach where the police officers make their presence known in an area more often and in ways that aren't just reacting to crime. Community policing. It becomes less of an adversarial, like, scary scenario whenever you have a police officer anywhere around you because they're human beings all of a sudden. Right. It's no longer just a police officer. It's, you know... Officer Nicholas. And for the officer, it's also helpful because they get to know the community. And when you see someone as a person and not as a potential bad guy, you don't jump to conclusions the same way. And you have sources of information. They trust you. You know, people that live in these communities don't want crime to be happening on their doorstep. It's just the mistrust that they have for the police overrides that instinct to protect themselves. And then they turn toward, I guess, other criminals to protect them in a lot of cases. That's what gangs and the mafia do, is they provide protection for people that the police will not. You know, that's the primary way Mm -hmm. they do things. And a lot of times this is all wrapped up in race and social class and poverty, and it just gets real sticky. Well, speaking of the mafia, do you guys want to talk about the Mr. Big from the first two episodes? Oh my god, seriously. I was so mad. Yeah, that episode was really interesting. So you want to explain what the Mr. Big interrogation method, or surveillance method, I guess, is? This was, uh, I forget where this was. It's Canada. It's the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. But like the actual murder happened in the U.S., but then the two suspects went to Canada. It's Vancouver and Seattle, basically, that people are moving between the metro areas anyway. Yeah, and so the Canadian police were assisting the United States with this, and they used this particular method that is illegal in the United States. They just refer to it as Mr. Big, where they introduce these two young men. I think they just start with one of them into what they think is a local mob. So they convince them that they're now involved in a local mob and they're helping them like count their money and things like that. And now that they're in with this gang that has all this power, it's like, oh, well, you're involved in a murder down in the U.S. Well, that could come back on us. You need to tell us about that so that we can help make the evidence disappear or something like that. Right. And you can't leave anything out because if you leave out that you threw the bloody clothes in two different dumpsters. We're going to miss one of them. Yeah. So you better be real specific. And then they start asking leading questions and doing kind of the standard false confession recipe. Yeah, because they kind of create this air of like machismo and stuff where they want to impress these guys who are like these cool mobsters or whatever who have out this power. So they like, oh yeah, yeah, I totally did that just to like get like street cred yeah. with them. And that ends up being a confession. And these kids were also feeling really railroaded they felt like this was going to be a foregone conclusion that the police were just really after them and they were going to find any reason so even if you are innocent you're going to be like okay how can i protect myself i love that the cops their idea these canadian cops their idea of what a gangster sounds like is just to say fucking every third word and that means you're like a real criminal dude apparently that is how (laughs) trashy canadians at the time sounded that was actually pretty (laughs) legit and irritating they're trying to seem like mafia members to people who are not really familiar with crime so they want to look like characters and sound like characters and they do from goodfellas and the godfather and, and those kind of movies so they're really playing up to those stereotypes. Right. And these are teenagers. Yeah, these are teenagers who have no experience with the real world. They're trying to dupe into thinking that they're these big shot mafiosos. I feel like teenage me would have been fascinated with that. <laughs> I had a little bit better judgment than that. Well, generously and assuming that they are innocent, which I'm not necessarily convinced of, that if you think that there's a government conspiracy from two different governments out to frame you for a murder for which life in prison and the death penalty are on the line you might be willing to talk to what you think is the mafia to save your ass right because they're offering to help you when no one else is really and they're offering you to you know find what evidence they have on you and you know tell you about it yeah and then it turns out if they had been convicted using this method in canada they would be released now because the canadian supreme court has said that this is an unfair investigative technique and is is now against the law right and even though it's illegal in the u.s the reason the judge allowed it is it was legal in canada and then they were extradited to the u.s that was kind of weird because i mean there's this idea of poisoned fruit right that whatever springs from an illegal search and seizure or police tactics that's all poison and can't be used 
It's inadmissible. Yeah, because it encourages that behavior for one. Right. You don't want them doing that to other innocent people, having more innocent people in jail. This was also the first instance that we're going to see a bunch throughout these cases of people, including police officers and judges and jurors, judging defendants based on how well they grieve and in what way yeah. they grieve. Yes. yes. The idea that people have to be perfect grievers or else they're guilty of murder. And your idea of what traumatized is. Unless they look like what I think a innocent person looks like, they must be guilty. I mean, my brain can understand an expert coming in and tell me, you know, this person is in shock and not everyone reacts to trauma in the same way. But my heart and my gut wants to see someone wailing right. in anguish and, you know, tearing their shirt and right. lost in grief. I don't want to see an emotionless robot. Right. Which That's is just the way the human mind works. And there's so many cases like this where you can be explained things, but your gut just will not believe it. If you're truly guilty and you're in any way smart, that's what you're doing. You're you're putting that on. Grief, you know, there is no proper way to grieve. And also people forget that fight or flight has the freeze element. And that also people aren't just constantly sobbing when they're in mourning. Like there's, right. there's 24 hours in a day and you can only cry for so long before you have to function. The video footage of them in the news just seemed really odd of Sebastian and, and Rafay just kind of running around and spending money. And yeah, I thought that was a little weird, but then and I was like, well, 19-year-old boys, very spoiled. There's really nobody looking after them. You know, I think it's perfectly reasonable to assume that they're also trying to kind of drown that trauma and bad memories in... Mm-hmm. diversion but it's, yeah. it's definitely in the eye of the beholder but it looks suspicious as fuck though <laughs> like how dare these two teenagers act like teenagers how dare they laugh ever or like at one point they complained about them playing loud music like oh heaven forbid a teenager play music in their house they must be murderers in a kind of a strange way a lot of these center around class and in a lot of ways the fact that these are relatively wealthy kids who are really smart and like all 19 year olds who are really smart and kind of wealthy pretty damn arrogant i think the jury enjoyed being able to take them down a peg yeah you know we had talked about these being the worst day of people's lives you know they're in shock there's trauma a lot of the times the police will pick them up after this murder Mm -hmm. when they end up drinking themselves into a stupor and taking a bunch of borrowed xanax and things like that yeah and then being dragged in for like a 10 hour long interrogation in the middle of the night where they're literally like falling asleep during the interrogations yeah that is a very vulnerable state to be in Extreme exhaustion can sometimes mimic the effects of being drunk. And it has a lot of, like, physiologically noted, we can tell from brain scans, impacts on how our brain and our mind function. Um, There's lots of studies of just delayed reaction and the frontal lobe, which is kind of in charge of decision making and controlling impulses, just kind of slowly just shuts down. And, And after a certain point of exhaustion, you're kind of hanging out and you're mammalian slash lizard brain mostly and people don't make good decisions when that's what they're basing their reactions off of so the police are against a timer essentially where if you don't gather the evidence and get that stuff immediately after a crime happens your chances of solving it rapidly decrease 48 hours trails go cold people clam up believe and people forget crucial details the longer it's been since since the incident or they talk to more people and the more they remember it their memory changes right the darkest interpretation they get a chance to get a lawyer oh goodness and you want to get in there before that you will notice that none of these false confessions happen with a lawyer in the room i would like to think that i would just be like lawyer 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 your lawyer put my head down and wait right. but and what the police will tell them is you're the closest relation to this person we need to eliminate you so we can mm-hmm. move on to the next person and most of these people are like yes let's catch the person who did this I want you to find them. I have no problem talking to you because I didn't do it. Yeah, and then like 10 hours later when you're nodding off from exhaustion for talking for that entire time and being interrogated, Mm -hmm. then strange things start to happen. Yeah, that's how they get you. Mm -hmm. And the same thing over and over and over and over again. In the last case, the Delisle case, they talked about, well, he was free to leave at any time, you know. His defense attorney talked about people don't just get up and walk out of interrogation rooms. Yeah, then you look guilty. Right. Right, because I think by the time you realize you probably should get the hell out of there, you're probably thinking, if I leave, it's going to look really suspicious. Yeah. Right. None of these people are brilliant legal strategists. They don't know what parts of this whole process are going to work for or against them in 
support. And most of them, many of them aren't even thinking this is going to be evidence or at least evidence used against them because they're so, if they're innocent, they're just presuming, okay, they just... It's going to work out. They're not trying to finger me, right. People talk a lot about brainwashing and hypnotism and all of that. Basically, they're creating a, a perfect storm of impaired individual Oh yeah. up against an authority figure who's being very kind. You know, sometimes they do the good cop, bad cop routine is actually a thing, but they're, they're being very kind and I'm just going to help you out. And then hour after after hour, they harangue them. They use operant conditioning, which is if we've learned about Pavlov's dog, you know, ring the bell and they salivate eventually in response to the bell instead of in response to food. Operant conditioning was sort of discovered later where you can, as the behavior that you want gets closer and closer. So a rat that you want to push on a lever, if he turns toward the lever, you reward him. If he walks up close to the lever, you reward him. If he brushes up against the lever, you reward him. And then when he finally pushes the lever, you reward him every time he pushes the lever. So translating this into human behavior, and you see a lot of this in the Lawrence Delisle confession tape where he's hooked up to this lie detector test, which we'll get into in a minute. Oh, so many things. And, you know, as he starts to approach what the interrogator wants him to say, he gets praised, he gets rewarded, like, you're doing a good job. That's very astute of you. You're really smart. You're very helpful. Putting words in his mouth until finally he just says what he knows the guy wants to hear because he wants to get out of there. They tell you, you get to go home if you just tell us this. Just tell us how you think it would happen. Tell us how you did it. They slowly, slowly inch you along. Right. Talking about the nice guy, like they really try and put themselves that they're on your side. Like, we know you didn't mean for this to happen, but I know what it's like to have kids crying in the back of the car or your wife yelling at you. You know, we've all, you know... Or teenage girls are awful, you know? Like, with Karen Bowes, they brought in her neighbor to help interrogate her. So that's an extra level of relationship that they have. I was surprised how metaphorical they got into in one of them with the tow truck. Oh my god, yeah. Oh, with the snake being the metaphor... Yeah, with a snake, he was just like, oh, you know, I was just a lookout, just hanging around, you know, I shot at a snake or something that came by, but that was, that was it. And they're like, I think that snake represents something. Talk about junk psychology. As one of my counseling professors is uh, wont to say when you're doing a counseling with children, most of the time a snake is just a snake. Sometimes it's a penis, but it's probably a snake. <laughs> <laughs> the way that the interrogators were sort of, I guess, fancying themselves like these great knowers of the human mind was so frustrating. That last guy was especially. The lie detector operator in that last episode just gave me the creeps the whole time. Oh, the, I'm, I don't know why God has gifted me with the ability to see into the hearts of men. Really <laughs> creepy. It's interesting that he starts off with how he beat a lie detector test. How he broke right. it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the very first time he was hooked up to it. Lie detectors are bullshit. They are not admissible in court because they are Don't bullshit. Don't ever take one. But they are used as an investigative tool. They're used as an intimidation yeah. tactic. This magic box knows you're lying. You do have a physiological response to stress. Your blood pressure, your heartbeat, how much your palms sweat. Skin conductance tests. They can tell when you're under stress. Right. Can't imagine why somebody might be nervous being interrogated by the police about a murder. And they're supposed to set up a baseline. Mm -hmm. And the thing is they've set up lie detector tests on known killers, people who actually have confessed and there's DNA evidence and there's witness and everything. And if you are a certain type of pathology, you have a certain type of mind, you can just lie. Just completely lie. You can also just train yourself to beat it. There are ways to just, you condition yourself to respond physically to a non-stressful question as though it were a stressful question and then the opposite for a stressful question. You don't even have to be some sort of psychopath, sociopath. So you just have to train and you can beat a polygraph easily. I would imagine that an actual sociopath would be good at beating a lie detector for two reasons. First of all, they do not feel guilt. 
So those responses that you would expect with your guilt driving your fear and anxiety aren't there. They probably also believe they are much smarter so they don't feel in any kind of mm -hmm. danger from mm -hmm. these cops, you know, in the cheap shoes driving a, you know, junky car, that they're mm -hmm. much smarter than them. So I think that those are not inherently stressful situations for them. Absolutely. So lie detector tests. Don't take one. Basically phrenology. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and what is the phrenology for those of us who don't know? Okay, phrenology is when they would feel of your skull in order to determine parts of your personality. They were just beginning to understand that different parts of the brain did different things. So a psychologist slash phrenologist came up with this idea that, well, you know, your brain will grow and then your skull will be affected. So these bumps will tell you what part of the brain is bigger. And so you'll have a criminality part or like a kindness part part. They would get calipers and measure people's heads and can find phrenology busts in, in flea markets. And I own one and because I think it's funny. I use it to prop up my <laughs> DSM-5 and DSM-4. Which As one does. It really says a lot about how I feel about those in a lot of ways. But <laughs> These kind of true crime documentary shows, whether they're TV shows or podcasts, they're increasingly popular. What is it about this kind of thing that you think makes them so popular? It's that narrative, I think. Mm -hmm. It's the idea that these potential monsters exist among us. And they're the police. They're the people who are supposed to protect us. <laughs> well, yeah, in this case, yes. Or they're serial killers. Right. With a lot of true crime stuff, it's not the police that are the villains. It's the murderer. It's a lot of women who are fans of true crime as somebody mm -hmm. who, and I have to be really careful about my trauma input. Sometimes I'm just like, yeah, true crime, woo. And then sometimes I'm like, you know what? I don't want to hear about <laughs> the iron bar that got put into this person. I need to take a break and listen to Mabim Bam today. <laughs> yep. Yay, Mabim Bam. Yay. It kind of gives me a sense of control that I can control this narrative. I can stop it anytime I want. It's a little bit of a distancing technique. It's a little bit of like, all right, what can I do to protect myself? And it's also kind of good because you know, because you're hearing the story, you know that they caught it. They stopped him or something like that. That's what I like about forensic files in particular, because that crime mm -hmm. is solved. It's got a beginning middle and end of resolution mm -hmm. the killer's in jail there's dna there's science man because of science da, 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 da. <laughs> yeah nothing has convinced me more that i could not get away with a crime than watching forensic files aren't we learning that a lot of csi style science is actually not very reliable so the arson stuff we've learned more about we figured out that hair comparing hairs under a microscope isn't necessarily the best. Our DNA tests are so powerful now that you can have an item sitting and then your suspect walks past it, sheds skin cells on it, it gets on that item. It's Gattaca. When you're being interrogated and they're offering you a cup of coffee or a cigarette or whatever, one of the main reasons for that not only is to build mm. friendship with you, but to get the DNA from the cigarette butts or the cup of coffee. And also to make you have to pee and then they can hold that over your head. And then we talk about bias too. The people who are working in these labs are good people. They're trying to be good scientists. They have varying degrees of uh, training and certifications and technical know-how. But a lot of times these crime labs are run and operated by, you know, the state police or the FBI or, you know, something like that. So there is that bias in there of I'm part of the law enforcement. Like these people are on my side and we're going to catch a killer today. Right. Well, and this idea of wanting to wrap everything up in an answer and make safety, mm -hmm. whether that's an illusion or actual safety, the idea of false convictions not only is someone falsely in prison and suffering, the actual person who committed these murders is still out there and likely to keep committing those crimes over and over and over again. Yeah, I think what broke my heart was when Rafay was giving his response to being convicted of the murder of his family, you know, he breaks down and cries. He says, I'm going to jail for a crime I didn't commit. But I also know that the person who did do this to my family is out there somewhere. So if he is innocent, that's like an extra cherry on top of the shit pie, you know? 
like it's horrible to think about and you know there's some good evidence and ideas out there that might have been someone else but a lot of it used a kind of a cold open style it came onto usually the journalist discussing a case and then as it unfolds you hear from the convicted or, or somebody from the victim or the friend of the convicted and then it's name of the thing and then you slowly it slowly unwinds what the story is i found that really compelling and it drew me into it i found the structure of this show to be extremely uncompelling and actively made me uninterested in the show because it doesn't give you enough focus each one of these cases i feel like has enough interest in it and enough drama and all of that to easily sustain an entire season you could really stretch it out and i see why they're doing multiple cases but they're trying to show this is a widespread problem this isn't just isolated to mm-hmm. one group or time but i feel like that really decreases the impact of each individual case and makes me much less interested I found it really weird that they lingered on the first two episodes. I I thought that was the least compelling and sympathetic of all of them. And maybe they just didn't have enough information, just cold hard stuff to put into the other. I think that was the most dramatic and like present in the media one. Well, you know, the lawyer having sex with her client in prison. Like that is just. (laughs) Well, who could say no to that hairstyle? (laughs) And then the one of the people being interviewed in that case was his former girlfriend. <laughs> yeah, that was kind of weird. She was still really supportive of him and definitely believed in his innocence, but was definitely not his girlfriend anymore. And I'm wondering if that occurred around the time he shagged the lawyer lady with the 80s hair. <laughs> Although, to be honest, any 19-year-old kid, male, locked up for however long and then suddenly presented with, you know, a female who will have sex with him consensually. He wasn't 19 anymore, but yeah, he spent the prime of his youth in prison in various forms of isolation, of solitary confinement, so yeah. Guys will bang a willing stick of butter, so, (laughs) you know... They're not that picky when it comes right down to it. The mental picture there is just... I paint a picture with words. That's fine. I did love that we got such a beautiful menagerie of 90s and really 80s and early 2000s, Mm. like fashions and hairstyles. I really feel like they're trying to pick from every decade to show you this wasn't just a problem in the 70s or the 80s or 90s, that this is a continuous problem that cuts across everywhere and all classes like people who are very smart and very wealthy do this people who are functionally illiterate and you know not wealthy at all fall for this basically anyone can fall for this kind of thing yeah and it really bothered me in the sentencing phase of the delisle case where the judge literally said sentencing in this case has bothered me ever since the jury returned its verdict only because i don't know that the defendant is guilty Uh. of the crimes of which he has been found guilty that does not mean that i believe he is innocent i just do not know i think it is only human to want to know that a person is guilty before you give the harshest sentence authorized in this state Uh, you know what that's called Reasonable doubt. doubt. And he still continued to give him the harshest sentence possible mm-hmm. with like no possibility for parole. It was like, uh. It's not his job to determine guilt or innocence. The jury does it and then he applies the penalty. There's a lot of mandated minimums and things. I and mean, that's one thing the judges often complain about is they have no mm-hmm. discretion for the most part when it comes to sentencing. Yeah, because judges abused that discretion in the past or there's a political desire to lock them up and be tough on crime. In just a lot of these cases, it seems like the jurors were not doing their job well enough. They weren't given the right instructions. They didn't understand the whole reasonable doubt thing well enough. I mean, I've heard it said that a jury is made up by people of people not smart enough to get out of jury duty you know 12 real dum-dums it's like going down to the dmv and being tried by whoever shows up these are not you know scholar poets of truth and justice well chris was a juror well chris is the obvious exception (laughs) i mean being on a jury is it's kind of the backbone of our rule of law that makes our society function but there's so many flaws that come with it it's still a jury of your peers and we're all human and yeah our peers are something else your peers might be big old doofuses 
Yeah. And many are. Yeah. And they're going to boot either the defense or the prosecutor is going to boot somebody with prior knowledge of part of the case. Yeah. Like my mom's gotten called. She's a pharmacist. And they asked, do you understand the concept of a blood alcohol level? And my mother says, I am a pharmacist. <laughs> Dismissed. Bye. <laughs> Thank you for your time, ma'am. Wow. Well, in general, any law enforcement or medical person will be automatically dismissed from any jury. The idea is they bring in knowledge that is not being presented. So what do you think you would get booted from a jury for being an expert of? My actual profession <laughs> isn't good enough? I don't know. Or, you know, also my interest in true crime would probably make them go, nah. <laughs> but I think either side could see that as a benefit, though. I think I, I even wrote on the jury duty thing that I, like, watched a lot of forensic files and they still selected me. So, you know, that's not necessarily an out. If there ever is a, a comic book or role-playing game related crime, I probably would be dismissed from the jury for knowing too much about these things. <laughs> and probably any kind of corporate finance scandal type thing. Like, I probably would not serve on an Enron jury. Oh, yeah. And Amanda, would you be able to serve on a jury? <laughs> mm, I'm more of a generalist than a specialist, I would say. I don't know that there's any one topic that I've gone so deep down the rabbit hole on that I just, I know too much. I've seen too much. <laughs> <laughs> Email. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, if anything, yes. Email marketing. I'm the scum of the earth. <laughs> Hey, I help with direct mail marketing. That's even Ooh, worse. you are. Yeah, people love you. You're the junk mail guy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, I'm really glad you both have confessed to us here. You've unburdened yourself. <laughs> it shows how wise and insightful you are. I'm sure you now feel much better. So let's... Oh, I feel creepy doing that. <laughs> we are going to play a game that I love. That's a great little icebreaker group game for when you're trapped in an elevator or a classroom or in a counseling group. Two truths and a lie. So you're going to say three statements... Two of them are true, but one of them is untrue. And it's an interesting test of other people reading you. It's an interesting test of how well other people know you to see who answers what. All right. Who's first? I'm going to say you go first, Ryan. First victim. All right. Uh, let's see. First statement. I have been banned from my local Target for what's called poor impulse control during Black Friday. <laughs> okay. Second statement, I have been carjacked by someone who committed a murder an hour previously. Whoa. Third, hmm, let's see. Let's see, what's I, a good lie? No, I'm trying, there's so many <laughs> truths, I don't know which one. I want one that sounds, I want a truth that sounds, you know, maybe not true. Sounds truthy. Now we know what that was, that your third statement is. <laughs> maybe, or maybe I'm playing playing you right now. Ooh. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> With the exception of the current president, I have met every U.S. president from when there was an office when I was alive. No way. Which is the truth, which is the lie. I don't believe that last one. Well, I need everybody to weigh in and then I'll... Y'all gotta vote. So, so we've got... Uh, been asked to never return to the local Target for Black Friday incidents. Okay. The local Target for Black okay. Friday, the carjacking, and the Wait. president. Like, I really want the second one to be the lie <laughs> because that's terrifying. But maybe it's the first one. Hmm. I'm going with the first one. I'm going to change my vote to the first one because that doesn't... You seem so, like, a gentle person. And that does not sound <laughs> like you. And yet... Maybe there are depths to you that we just have not yet uncovered. I don't know. He, we did talk early about how he uh, took a swing at a jester, so, you know. True. It's true. Mm -hmm. And the lunchbox. Mm -hmm. And he got mad and yelled at some uh, Nazis at a convention the other day, so... <laughs> but that's only logical. Oh, yeah. But yeah, it really I mean, is who logical. Wouldn't? Yell at Nazis, punch them, push them downstairs. <laughs> <laughs> I vote the first one. I'm going to vote for the carjacking. Hannah, what's your vote? The first one. The first one is the lie. It was a Walmart. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was a Walmart. Uh. <laughs> what? How did you get Tricky. kicked out of a Walmart? Uh, all right, so it was Black Friday, and I went there, and there were no carts available. You know, everybody had the carts in the store. There were none in the parking lot, none in the little foyer area where you get them. 
So I was, you know, going around and gathering stuff and kind of holding it in my arms and waiting for them to bring a cart. And they kept saying that they were going to bring in more carts. And then I saw them, like, there's supposed to be, like, a, a line of people waiting for it. And they started giving them to people not based on the order they were in. So I told them I didn't want any of their garbage, threw every item on the floor and knocked over a display stand and left. Wow. All right, then. I was angry. I was mad. That was asked not to return. <laughs> so are you banned from just that Walmart or Black Friday at Walmart or all Walmarts? I choose to say that I have taken the moral high ground and have not shop at Walmart. Uh-huh. That's my story. Amanda, what's your truths and lies? All right. Statement one. I once published a Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan fiction story. On a scale of 1 to 10, how erotic was this fan fiction? You will get no more details out of me other than that statement. (laughs) Oh, okay. Statement number two, I have never been to Mexico. And statement number three, I have two middle names. I tend to think that the second one is not true because you live in Texas. I do live in Texas. So it's right on the border. This third one... Sounds very Texas having a lot of middle names. So no. I'm going to say that that's true. You live like seven, eight hours away from mm-hmm. right now. Everything is seven or eight hours away from everything in Texas. Especially if you live in Austin. Mm-hmm. But you've been to Mexico. That's a lie. I'm going to go with Mexico as well. Uh-huh. I'm not going to go with Mexico. I'm going to go with, what was the last one again? It was... I have two middle names. Two middle names. I'm going to say that you don't have two middle names. You are all wrong. Oh, it was the first one? <laughs> so I did write the beginning of a Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan fiction story, but I never finished it or published it. <laughs> <laughs> who is the star? Just tell us who is the star. Buffy, of course. <laughs> all right. It was going to be a Buffy Spike situation. Aha! I knew it! <laughs> Who's the bad boy? Yeah. Spike fan. Team Spike. In the house that I primarily grew up in, the front door was yellow. I have never fallen out of a tree. Never (laughs) fallen out of a tree. And I didn't learn to read until I was in the third grade. Hmm. I have to draw upon my Anne of Green Gables knowledge (laughs) here and know that you loved going out into the woods and reading books up in trees, just like Anne. So I think you must have fallen out of a tree at some point, and I think you would have been an early reader. So I think your door was not yellow. If you think she has fallen out of the tree, then the second one would be the lie, right? Yes. Okay, now I see. Now I understand. I'm revising it. You had a yellow door, and you fell out of a tree. So second one's a lie. Yep. I fully agree that you have, at some point in your life, fallen out of a tree. Chris, husband, go for it. Let's see. I want to see. I want to see. You've gone last. They've already voted. We're playing the newlywed game all of a sudden. It's the third one. It's the didn't read until third grade. Yeah, it was the third one. I didn't learn to read until the second grade. I was not an early reader. Oh, wow. I will have you know, they got a little bit worried about me there. And then I pulled it out somehow. I don't know. My brain grew. But no, I have never fallen out of a tree. I've gotten like probably like four stories up in a tree. I've spent my young childhood up in trees. When you say four stories, is that the height or the number of books you read in a tree? (laughs) Oh, I've probably read like 50 books in a tree. But no, I meant the height. Congrats. I've come close a few times, but I always caught myself. (laughs) I like how so far all of our lives have been almost truths that are just sort of one (laughs) millimeter away from being a truth. Mm -hmm. It's the best kind of lie. Why don't you lay it on us, Chris? Well, let's go with body trauma here. How about that? (laughs) Continue the theme. Amanda (laughs) loves that. My favorite. I have crashed a three-wheeled all-terrain vehicle. I have shot myself in the head with a gun. (laughs) What? By accident. And I have fallen off of a horse. So we just have to pick what form of trauma your body has not been through. Yes. I think the gun is true but he's leaving out a detail to make it seem like it's false right he's leaving out like paintball gun or bb or something Uh, like that so that you think that couldn't be true i think it's the last one i think you're a very good horseman (laughs) i've never met you and i have no idea what your life is but i think you have a good 
horse sense. You have confidence in me. I like that. My Texas stereotypes are conflicting with each other because I see you riding a horse. <laughs> I also see you on an ATV. So. ATVs are so much easier uh, to have an accident on than a horse, at least if it's a good horse. That's true. Ozzy did flip. I've on. been on an ATV as well, and they're terrifying. I vote horse. I'm going to say horse. Yeah, I'm saying that's the lie. Yeah. So. Yeah, you're all right. Yay! You're a bad liar. <laughs> <laughs> And you're right, the gun was a BB gun, and it ricocheted off a tree and hit me between the eyes. <laughs> and I still have a little pockmark there. Just like in Christmas Story. Yeah. <laughs> we want to do our ratings? Okay, let's do our ratings. I'm going to give this one three and a half Ken Burns effects out of five. I will give it two and a half Lawyer Up. <laughs> Always. I'm going to give it four out of five 90s pantsuits. And I'll give it three lost faiths in the justice system out of five. Oh. Man, this show makes you lose a little bit of faith in your justice system. Mm-hmm. Okay, so should I watch it? Yeah. I say no, watch Making a Murderer instead. Or rewatch it. Mm. I tried to watch Making a Murderer and it just yeah, didn't same. grab me. I couldn't me. get through Making a Murderer. Oh, ho, ho. you guys have no <laughs> idea what you missed out on. I say you should watch it. It gets a little slow at times and it can be very depressing, but it points out something that is completely underreported and almost an epidemic in our justice system. Yeah. I'd say you should watch at least a couple episodes of it just to kind of get an idea of it. And so that maybe you know that if you've been in an interrogation room for nine hours, that maybe you right. should get up and leave or get a lawyer. You know, If you're innocent, get a lawyer. If you're guilty, don't bother you guys. <laughs> <laughs> They're not going to get you. Just leave your hairs everywhere. <laughs> you're smarter than they are. If the police move you to a location of their choosing, get a lawyer. Just respond to every question with the word lawyer. <laughs> oh, like Jessica Jones? Lawyer. <laughs> if you just said lawyer, they would not be obligated to get you a lawyer. Oh, what? Because you have not requested a lawyer. Oh, I would like to request a lawyer. Okay, all right. Even when you say that, they'll like ask you a bunch of times, like, are you requesting a lawyer? You know? <laughs> That's true. Because they're trying to pressure you into saying, no, I'm not. <laughs> and then they record you snarkily asking for a lawyer, and then they play that at your trial, and they're like, look at this asshole. <laughs> they lawyered up right away. You know he's guilty. As soon as we asked the question, it made him nervous. Well, I mean, you should, you know, try to help a police investigation. You should be cooperative, I think. But at a certain point, if they're accusing you, and you've told them I didn't do this several times already, then, you know, get a lawyer. That's how they get you, Chris. That's why I say if they move you to a location of their choosing. So if they're interviewing at your work or your house or whatever, you know, yeah, I, I would say talk to them. But as soon as they're like, come down to the station so we can go over this again, get a lawyer. So we're rotating the show selection through now. And I think, Chris, you're... Okay, so now that we're done with the serious true crime, we're going to go into some true crime satire in Netflix's American Vandal, a series that explores the aftermath of a costly high school prank that left 27 faculty cars vandalized with phallic imagery. <gasps> so hopefully this will be a good uh, palate cleanser for all the uh, downers we'd had to go through lately. Is there body horror in this one? Yeah, hopefully no body trauma, just dicks. I think, well, I mean, unless you count spray-painted dicks as body horror. That does not count. That is just good, clean, old-fashioned comedy. So that was the confession tapes. You can find all kinds of nerd shenanigans, including our other podcast, Four Color Nerds Comic Book Reviews, at fourcolornerds.com or on our Facebook page. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. You can find the podcast on iTunes and Google Play Music. On Stitcher. On SoundCloud. And on Podcast Addict. Be sure to rate review and subscribe and be sure to come back next week for another episode until then keep streaming nerds